my name is Lori McLeese, and I am the head of HR for Automatic. And I'm going to speak a little bit about hiring and then pass the mic over to Davide. Okay, so to start with, will it move on that, will it move on that screen too? Okay, um, so I'll talk a little bit about hiring. So what do we actually look for when we're hiring? I'm going to start by saying that even though I'm the head of HR, I don't get involved with hiring until we've actually extended someone an offer letter. We have hiring councils within Automatic that hire for the role. So for example, we have an engineering council that hires for our software developers. We have a designer council that hires for the designers, support for customer support, and so on. And so the first step is that someone sends in their application, and our founder still reviews all the incoming applications. If he thinks it's a good fit, he forwards it on to the hiring council. And what we're looking for when we're hiring is technical skills and culture fit. And lately, culture fit has become a euphemism for white guys sitting in a room together, and that's not what I'm talking about. We're actually looking for the values of our company. So are you a curious learner? Are you self-motivated? Um, are you honest? Do you have a high degree of integrity? Um, do you have a sense of humor? Are you a great communicator? So that's what we're looking for. So once the uh, application goes to the hiring council, then we actually have kind of like the first step of the, the hiring process, which is the interview. And this is an interview that's done um, usually by Skype text chat. So it's not done by voice, and it's done by the one member of the hiring council. And we're looking just for basic skills. Do they have the skills necessary to do the job that we're asking them to do? What is their interest in open source? WordPress is an open source project, and so we're looking for people that are passionate and who have contributed in some way or another to open source projects. And then also, how humble are they? Uh, we give a lot of feedback about people's performances at Automatic, and so if someone isn't able to take feedback about their work during that initial process, they're probably not going to fit very well into Automatic. So then the next step is really interesting. Um, we actually give the person a trial. And this is a paid project. It usually lasts between four and six weeks. And it's meant to be done while the person is actually still working a full-time job. It usually takes about 15 to 20 hours a week. can be done in the evenings or on the weekend. It's a specific project. And we're looking for, again, do they have the technical skills to do what we're asking them to do? Um, are they self-motivated or do they need a lot of hand-holding to walk them step by step by step through the process? And how well do they communicate? Are they the type of person that runs into a problem and tries to figure it out by themselves, but then reaches out through one of our communication channels and figures out, hey, can someone help me with this? I got stuck. Or are they just going to spin their wheels until the deadline is upon them and they haven't been able to solve it? So the reason that we do trials is really is an advantage for both the candidate and for Automatic. The candidate gets to understand, is this the type of work environment that I want to work in? For many people, it's their first time working in a distributed environment. And truthfully, some people get to the trial part of the process and they say, you know what, I don't like this. 
I want to be in an office next to people collaborating in person. And so they opt out, which is, is great. Um, other people say, no, this, I really like this. I can get used to this. I'm very productive. It also gives automatic a chance to see, okay, does this person, are they self-motivated? Are they doing the type of work that we want them to do? Are they communicating well? And so then after the trial, once they're offered a full-time position, meeting in person is actually a big part of our culture, which seems a little bit counterintuitive given that we're 100% distributed. We've got 242 people in 31 countries, but it's so important to have both that once a year opportunity for the whole team to meet together. Um, usually for about a week, we work on projects, we launch code, we go to dinner together, we do activities. We also encourage teams to get together several times a year for up to a week at a time. And again, that in-person bonding is so important so that when you're working offline, you understand the person, you get their sense of humor, you hear their voice when they're writing on the internal blogs. And so now I'm going to turn it over to Davide. Hello. Um, so, scaling. Now, this is a huge topic. So I'll try to give a few pointers um, taken from automatic experience that uh, may help framing this a little bit better. Um, the first thing, uh, even if apparently may sound trivial, probably even more in this context, um, is that communication is oxygen. This is one of our core values. This doesn't just mean that we need to communicate, but uh, that we put a special emphasis on uh, the way you do that, the frequency of it, uh, the fact that uh, everything is better shared. All these values um, are critical to, to allow a team and a company to engage with others and work at the scale we work to. So, um, a way I'd like to frame this, um, there is a lot of discussion around tools. Um, and I worked in the past in consultancy agencies hel helping companies to become uh, better and more collaborative. Unfortunately, the discussion about tools is usually uh, not that important. Um, the way I'd like to frame this is around the, what I call the three speeds of collaboration that are in a way similar to what Debbie was talking before. Um, the idea here is that there is a real-time moment. Um, so things that need to be discussed right here with the team. I need to, a clarification right now. Uh, we need to brainstorm, do some brainstorming together. And that's really the realm of the real-time aspect. And on this, we use IRC, sometimes Skype, but just to say how the technology isn't that relevant. Um, that discussion happened, yes. IRC is enough, yes. Perfect. The second aspect is the synchronous one. Um, the tool we use is O2, that is a platform that will be released this year, running on WordPress, um, and it's basically an, an activity stream. The emphasis on asynchronous uh, is because I send a message and I don't expect an answer right here, right now. That's the big difference between the first two. Um, this is very important in a distributed environment because it's allow, um, it's allow the discussion to scale, really, across time zones, across teams. Uh, it creates a log over time that can be read. Um, and as you can clearly understand, asynchronous often takes the place of email. So we don't send much email. 
And the third speed is uh, the storage one, is the things that there is one place where uh, a specific kind of information is shared. This information are like how to organize a meetup, um, how to do hiring, um, our style guide, so everything that is meant to stay and to be curated over time. Um, but now scale, right? So uh, we work organized around teams. Um, a team, let's say loosely, is around a specific objective, not necessarily a product, not necessarily a function, um, but it's around a specific objective that needs to be achieved by this, the, this specific team. Um, that determines its component, uh, composition. And the aspect there is that each team has one chat, one space, one room, and one O2 where they can discuss and aggregate. This is especially important uh, because it allows everyone to then jump in. Um, I can go to another team O2, um, any team, from money to hiring to anything really, and I can see what's happening, what they're discussing about. Maybe there is something I can contribute on even if I'm not part of the team. And this brings us to one of our big, big, big values here, that is transparency. Um, so communication is oxygen, but the other side of it is that it needs to be transparent. And that's the very reason why we use IRC. Anyone can jump in, in any chat room. Uh, we use sometimes Skype, but as you, as you can see, Skype has the problem um, that it's a closed environment. I can be in a chat and nobody knows that that chat even exists. So O2 instead is completely open. I can see everything there. And in a sense, this brings back to the culture, to the importance of hiring the right people. And I usually like to frame this with this amazing quote by Scott Adams. That is, management exists to minimize the problems created by its own hiring mistakes. Think about it, it's pretty much close to reality. That's it, thank you very much. Great, thank you both. Um, all right, so we've gotten a bunch of good questions and I have some questions as well. Um, so, so let's start, because we started talking about hiring, let's start with that. Um, Lori, I think I heard you say that Matt Mullenweg, the founder, reviews all of the applications still. So that can't go on forever, right? That doesn't scale in infinity. And I think, in fact, the Google founders used to do that sort of famously, and at some point that doesn't keep going on. So what's the plan for after you're too big for Matt to review everything? Well, Matt um, will publicly say that hiring is one of the most important things that he spends his time on. And he currently spends about 30% of his time um, not only reviewing the incoming applications and then you know, passing them on, but also doing the final chat with the applicants before they're hired. Um, I think that moving to the hiring councils is definitely a step in the direction of training people of you know, what is he looking for in automaticians and helping them to realize you know, what's he looking for so that at one point maybe they can take over that, that initial first step. Uh, but right now he's still very excited to be, to be doing both the first and the last step of the hiring process. Okay, cool. So um, one of the questions I have is, and this is also a um, question from the audience, is how do you assess non-technical people? And is, is Matt sort of equally um, able to do that? Um, but how does the company assess them? And what kind of projects do they wind up participating in as a test? 
So that might be customer service, it might be HR, anything. Yeah, good. <laughs> no, sure. Um, I mean, in my direct experience with Matt, um, but also from the feedback I got all across, is that Matt primarily looks for the culture fit. Mm -hmm. In a sense, he checks if this person that is talking with him um, is actually feels good, relates, gives the, the answers um, in the way he feels they are okay. So I think that most of the discussion uh, around skills, specifically for the job, are left to the council, are left to the trial. Um, and so when the discussion gets to him, he wants to review that. And I can say from personal experience that um, in my case, he was in London while I was doing the interview with him. And uh, he explicitly avoided meeting me in person because the, he wanted to do an interview remotely to see how it felt. Thank you. Um, all right. So, um, thanks. So, so one of the things that I wonder about that is if part of the the culture fit is it feels good to Matt. Do we have like 230 people who agree with Matt all the time, or is there you know something else that's built in that gives you pushback? No, that's that's actually a great question. And so, I want to emphasize that you know Matt looks at the initial applications and it spends just seconds before he forwards them on to the hiring council. You then have the trial, which works not only with their trial lead, but also is working with many other people in the company. They're given access to our internal blogs, to IRC, um, to communicate with many others. And so the trial leads have a, an actually really important job in determining whether to recommend passing this person on for a potential hire or not. Um, so it's, it's not just Matt, it actually is many people that go into that decision um, before it gets to him for the final stage. Got it. How's that? No? Okay. No. Okay, I'm gonna use this again, thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, so, um, so with, couple hundred people in 31 countries, um, this is one of our audience questions, and it's a great one. How do you deal with regulatory compliance? Um, and do the varying regulatory environments affect your culture and collaboration? And I have a feeling that, Laura, you're going to want to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, we are in the process of actually converting many of our international contractors uh, to full-time employees and dealing with some of the, the regulations that you're referring to. Um, it, is, it is a very challenging project. I'm learning a lot. Um, we also, though, just have a lot of trust in the company. For example, um, our, we have an open time off policy where you, you take the time off that you need. And that looks very different for people in different countries. And we're okay with that. Um, I think the, the most stereotypical example is that when you look at vacations that people are taking, um, in the U.S., people will take three to four weeks. People in Europe will take six to seven weeks, and that's that's okay. And we don't try to make that fit into into one cookie cutter. Um, all right. So a couple people have asked um, about the the trial projects when you're hiring people. So back to the hiring question: um, What type of trial projects do you give potential hires? I'd be interested in both kind of um, technical and non-technical folks. Um, and somebody commented, you know, we love trials before bringing people on full-time, but we don't always have standalone projects lined up. 
So how do you work with that? Well, I think that uh, there are a few aspects that probably are, works better for us um, due to the kind of work we do. Um, but um, I was actually involved in a few discussions trying to find actually one of these projects that could fit in, into roughly this 40-hour uh, time frame. Um, they can be really anything from uh, a specific functionality that needs improvement. Um, actually, the open source uh, WordPress.org um, is already fit for that kind of work because it can be structured as a plugin or as, a, as a, some kind of extension. So someone could start working on that. But there are also trials, uh, as you mentioned, not just technical. So for example, um, my personal trial was more around growth, for example. So I had to, to review one of the products, uh, analyze, do user testing, and extract um, a potential timeline of features that needed to be developed. That's roughly something that you can frame around around 40 hours. And in a sense, the challenge for, for this kind of trial is also what's the subset of activities you can do to make it fit in 40 hours? That's another part of the challenge that is, that is very valuable. So it, it works pretty well all across. You can, you can frame it. It's not easy to find these kind of projects, yes, um, but it's, it's doable. Laurie, can you talk a little bit about the kinds of projects for folks like HR, where it's, it's really could be any sort of work? Yeah, so um, in HR or finance, we try to give them projects that are actually applicable to the business, um, but that will also have the trial interacting with people on many other teams within the company, because that is part of our job. Um, for a recent HR trial, I actually had them research um, the different steps and the different agencies that we would need to contact or to consider before setting up a legal establishment in Ireland, which was something that we were considering. And so it was, it was very practical, and it also gave me a good sense of how well they could do research, they could interact with other people in the company, they could ask questions, they could communicate on our internal blogs. So once you found those folks, tell us about the onboarding process. Well, um, we, we can um, start with uh, support. Um, it's uh, two weeks where everyone, regardless of the role, regardless of anything, does two weeks of support, um, three weeks, sorry. Um, so you get the, a big understanding of what's happening out there, what the problems are, um, so you really get in touch uh, with, um, with our users um, all the time. Um, these steps actually start with two days where you have um, a few people that help you training, helps you getting into the up to speed, uh, two full days with basically training around that. Uh, and then you have usually another person at least that is uh, with you all the time to be able to answer the question you may have. Uh, that person is usually in your same time zone because just helps uh, the very first days around it. And, and after that, then you start with your new team. So anything is, depends on the specific teams and the, sp the specific activities. So um, I have one question for each of you in the time we have left. We're going to talk fast. Um, Davida, how can people keep track of communication across all the channels that you mentioned? Do they read them on their own? Is there a way to know what's most important? You know, we, we talked about many channels. How do people keep track? Well, information overload is a huge risk 
um, across this. But in a sense, it's also a matter of prioritization. So um, first priority for me is really following my team O2 and my team chat. Um, and then before, after that, I have a few others that I value more or less important depending on the period of time. Uh, and there are the company-wide updates that are, happen more rarely. Um, so if you think in this way, basically the, the critical stuff is always addressed in a matter of half an hour, one hour a day, no more than that. Um, everything else is really up to you depending on what are your activities, what are your interests. If you're collaborating with another team maybe, then probably you want to follow them as well uh, for a little while. So this is, this is one of the reasons. And as I mentioned, everything is transparent, everything is recorded. Even the IRC chats, I can refer back to one a chat that happened, um, so it's linked and so it's visible to everyone. All right, so Laurie, last question here. With such a large distributed team, how do you introduce and maintain culture in your team? That's a big question, but if you've got an example or two, that would be great. Yes, so we, um, like I said, we place a value on actually meeting in person, meeting your teammates in person within a couple of months of joining the company. Um, we also assign buddies or mentors when someone first joins to kind of shepherd them through the first six months of a different type of workplace. Um, we, what are some other examples of culture? We, yeah, it's the team, the team lead really does a lot to, because the teams are anywhere from four to, usually we try not to have them be more than about 12 people. And again, having the team lead check in with them on a regular basis, having the, the group chats on a weekly basis. Um, my team checks in with the new team members as well. Okay, then I am going to ask a follow-up question. <laughs> um, so um, this is from the audience, and I'm going to add to it. Um, the question was, how do you foster a culture of gender equality in a remote setting? Um, how do you ensure that gender biases don't crop up? And I'm going to add to that, if the team leads are really an, the key person for each team, how, how do you think about other kinds of biases too? It could be um, around age, around race, lots of other things. So how do you guys think about that? And that'll definitely be our last question. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I absolutely will not say that we have a m magic bullet answer for that. Um, it's something, though, that we discuss very openly and very transparently, uh, which I do think is the start to addressing if problems are happening. Um, we, uh, I would say about 30% of our employees are females. Um, but within the company, we also talk about how do we get more female engineers, because most of the females are in either support or operational roles. Um, so that's something that not just the female automaticians, but the whole company works on. Um, it, we just, we have a lot of open conversations that can be, when you first read them, because they're happening on an O2, so they're happening in writing. Um, you can kind of look at it and go, wow, that's, that's pretty deep, or someone just shared something really personal. It's a super respectful environment, though, where it's okay to challenge someone on something that they've said that might be discriminatory or prejudiced and say, what did you mean by that, and this is how I took it, and just have an open conversation about it. All right, well, thank you both so much. 
We really appreciate your time. And I want to mention, too, if you want to learn more about how Automatic works, Scott Birkin just wrote a really interesting book called The Year Without Pants, where he spent a year, a little more than a year, I think, working for Automatic. And he details in, in quite a, a bit um, of language what it means to go through the onboarding process, the customer service piece of it, for example, um, what it means to manage a team where and nobody's in the same place. Um, so The Year Without Pants. And thank you to Lori and Davida. Thank, Thank you so you. much.